Our scripture for today is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on, one, on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. All right, all right. Well, let's take our Bibles together. You all look fabulous this morning, by the way, just so you know. Good to see you. Let's take our Bibles together and turn to the passage that was just read, Romans 2, 1 through 11. Our series is entitled Holy and Holy in the book of Romans. And our focus today uh, is Romans 2, 1 through 11. You know, John Gerstner, the well-known Bible teacher and mentor to R.C. Sproul, he tells a story once about a trip he took to Asia. He went on this trip with his wife, and they were actually in uh, Kashmir in northern India. And at one point on their trip, they decided to take this little excursion on a boat. It was he and his wife, and then there was this old man who was driving the boat who didn't speak a lot of English, and then also this boatman's grandson all together on this boat. And, and they had a good time, and on the way back from this excursion, they were starting to near the shore, and they actually bumped into another boat. And, you know, when that happened, a bunch of water splashed up on them. It even got as high as knee level for Gerstner and his wife, and the boatman, as a result of this bump, got really agitated. And, you know, Gerstner was trying to calm him down. He said, it's okay, it's okay, it's just a little bit of water, no big deal, it's okay. We're okay, you're okay, don't get upset. Well, a few minutes later, they were getting close to the dock, and this boatman was getting even more agitated. And, you know, there's this language barrier, and so Gerstner was like, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's okay, we're okay, you're okay. And when they, when they got right in front of the dock, the boatman was getting incredibly agitated. And, you know, Gerstner didn't know what to make of this. You know, does this guy have an ego problem? You know, he's a center, like we're all centers, right? And he's just got an issue. And so, you know, as this agitation level, this boatman keeps rising. Gerstner's like, he's trying to convince him, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay. Well, eventually, when they got to the dock, the boatman looked at Gerstner, and he said in broken English, you not okay, I not okay. And he pushed Gerstner out of the boat and his wife. And then he took his grandson and he threw his grandson out of the boat. And then he jumped out of the boat. And the moment he jumped out of the boat, 
the boat sunk underneath the water and then popped back up like six boats down the road. They weren't okay. And Gerstner talks about this and says, you know, if I had stayed there one more second, I would have been sucked underneath. There was a hole in the hull of this boat, sucking it underneath. The boatman knew that. Gerstner didn't. He thought he was okay. He wasn't okay. Gerstner says about that story, I realize that's the message of the Bible. That's the message of the Bible. You're not okay. I'm not okay. You might think you're okay. You're not okay. And in fact, you know, Gerstner reference, references this famous self-help book in the 1970s. Some of you might remember that book. It's called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It's, it's kind of a joke now. But uh, in the 1970s, it was on the New York Times bestsellers list for two years. And the reason people make fun of it now is because of how naive the premise is. You know, you look out on our world, you look out on people's lives and they're not okay. You look at your own life, you're, I'm not okay. You're not okay. I'm not okay. The, the whole premise of the book is wrong. And Paul in Romans 2, he's kind of like that Kashmirian boatman saying, you're not okay. I'm not okay. We're not okay. No, I, I'm fine, Paul. You know, I, I don't have sin like the rest of the people. No, 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 you don't understand. You are a sinner condemned before a righteous God. No matter how righteous you think you are, you're not righteous enough. You're not okay. I'm not okay. We need help. Just turn to your neighbor right now and say, you need some help. Some of y'all enjoyed that too much sinfully, sinfully too much. Here's the outline for the passage today. I mean, I could just tell you that's the point of this message today. You're not okay, I'm not okay. But there's more to it than that. So let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. First of all, write this down as number one in your notes. Here's why we're not okay. Man's actions, Paul says, are inexcusable before a holy God. We are without excuse. Paul says in verse one, therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, this is an interesting statement in chapter 2, verse 1, because we just dealt at the end of chapter 1 with this laundry list of sins, and Paul condemns homosexuality, the practice of it? Yes, absolutely. But he also condemns those who are haughty, those who are insolent, those who are malicious, those who are unrighteous, those who are envious. He condemns gossipers, slanderers, those who are disobedient to parents. We're all guilty by that standard. Who could escape that list at the end of Romans 1 unscathed? We've all committed at least one of those sins. And yet conceivably, there's still some people in Paul's mind that they get to the end of Romans 1 and they're like, yeah, 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 Paul, sick them, Paul, get after them. Get after those lousy sinners. Give them a good tongue lashing. That's what they need. And so Paul, at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, you think you're okay? You who judge another person, you're not okay either. We're not okay. You are the pot calling the kettle black. That's what you are, says Paul in verse 1. My professor at Moody, one of my professors, Bill Thrasher, used to tell this story about these uh, Dutch women in Europe who would, who would weep openly about the state of their American grandchildren who immigrated to America. And I mean, they, they would mourn what was happening, the, the, the degraded state of these women, because these women started to use makeup in America. 
And, and that was a great harm. That was a sinful thing in Dutch society. And so these women, these old women would just weep and weep for the, for the unholy American ancestors of theirs. And their tears would stream down their eyes and come down their faces. And they would, their tears would mix with the cigarettes that they were smoking. And then it would fall off of their face and, and, and drip down into the pitchers of beer that they were drinking together. We're so good at judging other people's sins, aren't we? It's even supposed sins and not so good at identifying what's going on in our own heart or judging ourselves. Jesus said it this way to the Pharisees. You guys know this. Jesus said, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You're hypocrites, said Jesus. Jesus said, take the plague out of your own eye before you can point out the speck in your brother's eye. You know, Paul and Jesus, they're pointing out the same things. They're, they're not at war with each other. Like I said last week, they're pointing out hypocrisy as part of the human condition. And they're also pointing out something else. They're pointing out the universality of human sinfulness. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we need help. You're not okay. I'm not okay. We need help. Remember Jesus's parable, the prodigal son. Y'all remember that? The prodigal son, there were two sons in that story. There were two brothers. There's the younger brother who was a prodigal. He, was, he liked sex with prostitutes. He squandered his father's money on stupid stuff. He was licentious. He was materialistic. He's the Romans one son. But, but that's not the end of the story. There's the older brother. He's obedient. He's compliant. But he's also resentful. He's also judgmental. He when his younger brother gets a party. He resents his father for not celebrating him. He's prideful. He's the Romans two son. What's the point of that parable? Why did Jesus tell us that parable? Why is there even an older brother in that parable? What's Jesus trying to say? You're not okay. We're not okay. None of us are okay. We have all sinned. We all need Jesus. We all need a way out of this sinful condition. John Stott says in Romans 2, about Romans 2, he says that Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. True? True? We are often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient towards ourselves. Even people outside the discipline of theology know this. You know, Sigmund Freud called this projection. Psychologists call this projection. Thomas Hobbes, the, the 17th century political philosopher, he said that there are people who are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. True? We're like that. We're like that. Martin Luther said in contrast to that, to that, he said the unrighteous may look for good in themselves and for evils in others. He said, but the righteous, and by righteous, you've got to understand what Luther means. He means those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, those who have been declared righteous by the work of God. The, the righteous try to see their own faults and overlook those of others. Speaking of this issue, you might call this judgmentalism, the, the big sin that Paul's dealing with here. R. Kent Hughes, he says this, he says, there is nothing more destructive to the spread of the good news than this. It is the fact that if you have a censorious, self-righteous spirit, 
Others will sense it without you saying a word. The set of your jaw, the moisture in your eyes, the flush of your countenance, the tone of your voice will give you away and you will bring not life, but death to others. He says also, hell will be full of judgmental goody-goody people. He's right. He's right. Paul says to these self-righteous, judgmental people in Romans 2, you are guilty before God too. No man, no woman can, has an excuse before Almighty God. Man's actions are inexcusable before a righteous God. In fact, it's the same language that Paul used in Romans 1 to condemn the pagan Gentiles who ignore God's existence or who pretend like God doesn't exist. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 20, they are without excuse. The Greek is anapologetos. Anapologetos. They are without excuse. It's obvious that God exists by what he made. Even Helen Keller knew that. Helen Keller says this. She says, I can see, and that is why I can be happy in what you call the dark, but which to me is golden. I can see a God-made world, not a man-made world. This is a woman who was deaf and blind from infancy due to a, to a sickness she contracted. And she can say, I, even I know that God made this world. Even I can see that. How much more could we see it, those of us who have eyes to see and ears to hear? Paul says the Gentiles are without excuse in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, he uses that same language. He says, you are without excuse as well, those of you who judge others. Because even in your judgmentalism, you are a sinner before a righteous God. Jews are not okay before God. Gentiles are not okay before God. By the way, who's, who's Paul talking about here in chapter 2? You know, the, Paul's using this technique. It's called, it's called a diatribe. It's when you have this kind of imaginary argument with somebody to make a point. I do that when I preach every Sunday. And, you know, and you're listening to Paul kind of use these rhetorical questions. Who's he talking to? Who's he talking about really here? I think probably the best evidence shows that he's talking to Jews in his day. Jews who would look at chapter 1 at the end of that chapter and say, yeah, yeah, those Gentiles, they're so sinful. And Paul says, not so fast, Jewish folks. You're in need of a Savior too. You're not okay before God either. Some of you, and you know, just as a parallel in our world today, some of you might say, Pastor Tony, I'm okay. You know, I'm a pastor's kid. I'm good. No, you're not. You are a sinner as a pastor's kid, just like everybody else. And some of you might say, well, you know, my, my parents, Pastor Tony, just so you know, they started First Baptist so-and-so down the street. They're founding members. They believe in Christ. They are followers of the Lord. They're good people. That's great. I love that. That doesn't mean anything for you. God has no grandchildren. Nobody gets grandfathered in by the faith of their parents. You have to decide that for yourself. You have to be saved yourself. Right? Have I said that before? I think I've said it before. It bears repeating. Some of you might say, Pastor Tony, I'm an American. This is, this is a Christian nation. Look, even if there was such a thing as a Christian nation, we are not one, okay? Okay? And nobody's going to stand before God in eternity and say, well, you know, I'm an American, Lord. You've got to let me into your kingdom. That's not going to fly. We all, all of us, 
Whatever context you're in, whether you're in a Buddhist context, a Jewish context, a Christian context, a Muslim context, we are all sinners before a righteous God. We are not okay. And by the way, let me, let me just point this out. I mean, Brad just read Romans 2, 1 through 11. There's not one mention of Jesus in that entire passage. And usually when I talk about this, I talk about, you know, the, the, foot, the ground is level at the foot of the cross and we're all sinners and Christ saves sinners. And that's the point I'm trying to make typically when I preach this kind of message. But I just want you to know that's not Paul's point here. Paul's not saying that, you know, all of us can be saved by the blood of Jesus. He gets to that eventually in the book of Romans. But you know what he's saying right here? He's saying that all of us equally deserve judgment. That's the point of Romans 2, 1 through 11. You got to get that down. We all stand condemned as sinners before a righteous God. You might say, should we we talk about Jesus then, Pastor Tony? Are you going to talk about Jesus? Yeah, I will. But not till we get this down. There's more to unpack here with what Paul's arguing. So write this down as number two in your notes. First of all, man's actions are inexcusable. Secondly, God's judgment is inescapable. Paul says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We know that. We know that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice evil things. And you might say, well, how do we know that? Well, if you follow Paul's argument here, we know that. How would a Jew in Paul's day know that? Because they, they had the Old Testament. That was revealed to them. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says this. You can read this on the screen. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Psalm 37, 38. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 92, 7 says similarly, though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Speaking of the the climactic day of the Lord, the the day of God's wrath, Malachi 4.3 says, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Every good Jew in Paul's day knew about God's judgment. Every, Every good Jew anticipated God's judgment. There just there was this temptation to believe, oh, you know, because I have that favored status as a Jew, a favored person status, I, I'll I'll be, you know, freed from that judgment to come. Because you know we're the sons and daughters of Abraham, we're okay. And Paul says, no, you're not okay. You're not okay. And by the way, speaking of judgment, we have the added benefit of what the New Testament says about judgment. You guys should know this just like a, a Jew in Paul's day would know this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 through 10, speaking of the judgment that's to come. I preached this last year. The passage says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Wait, Jesus is going to do that? Yeah, Jesus is going to do that. Inflict vengeance on those who don't obey the gospel. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. This is the judgment of God that is coming to our world. Paul says, we know that the judgment of God is coming. We know it. And then Paul says this in verse three. And and again, he's asking this 
kind of rhetorical question to his imaginary dialogue partner. He says, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The obvious point that Paul's trying to make here is that you won't escape the judgment of God. No one will escape it. And here's, here's why. Here's the issue. And I want you all to get this. God does not hold us to a subjective standard of righteousness. You know, it's not like, well, you know, I'm more righteous than that person over there. A Jew in Paul's day might say, well, I'm not as, I'm not as unrighteous as those lousy pagan Gentiles. God doesn't hold us to a subjective standard of righteousness. He holds us to an objective standard. Objective. Him, perfection, that's the standard. And Paul's saying we all fall short of it. You know, even, even, there were even Gentiles in Paul's day who, you know, when they compared themselves to other Gentiles, they came out pretty good, subjectively speaking. There was a philosopher in Paul's day named Seneca, and he's a case in point. Seneca did his best to distance himself from other Gentiles who were evil. He exalted moral virtues. He exposed hypocrisy in the Roman Empire. He preached the dignity of all human beings and, and practiced self-examination. He was... Subjectively speaking, he was better than those other lousy pagan Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is, you Seneca too, you have fallen short of the glory of God. Jews might say, well, we're more righteous than the Gentiles. Paul says, no, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's judgment is inescapable for all of us, for all of us. Paul is saying here, there is a standard. It is who? It's Jesus. That is the objective standard. None of you measure up to that standard. All of you are deserving of God's judgment. And so he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this. Man's actions are inexcusable. God's judgment is inescapable. Man's actions are indefensible also. Number three. Paul lets loose another rhetorical question. Verse four. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, and patience. Is God a patient God? Yeah, he is. Is he forbearing? Yeah, but what Paul says here is that patience of God is not meant for us to be apathetic. It's meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness, says Paul, does not excuse man's sinfulness. God's, God's kindness doesn't cancel out men's sinfulness. Yes, God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But let me qualify that. That doesn't mean that God is devoid of anger. That doesn't mean that God is devoid of wrath or judgment. The French skeptic Voltaire, he said once, he said, God will forgive that's his business. Dismissively, as if, you know, genie in the sky, genie in a bottle, he's here to do what we want him to do, his business is forgiveness, as if God's only business is kindness, as if God's only business is forgiveness, as if God's only business is to, to forbear with our sins. God is also in the business of holiness. God is also in the business of wrath. God is also in the business of judgment. 
And besides that, Paul's saying that God's kindness isn't a means for us to take advantage of him or to be apathetic. It should lead us to repentance. Paul says you're not repentant. You're not humble. You're not contrite, coming to God, asking for mercy. You're like the Pharisee in Jesus's parable. You remember Jesus's parable about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector? Pharisee prays to God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. What a prideful thing to pray. What, what's, what kind of standard of righteousness is he, is he using there? A subjective standard, right? I'm glad I'm not like these other men. I'm glad I'm not like this sinful tax collector over here. And the tax collector, on the ha- other hand, he beats his chest. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, he went home justified rather than the other. The word that Jesus uses there for, for justified, it's this Greek word, dikaio, which is the same word that Paul uses in Romans to talk about those of us who are justified by faith. Paul and Jesus say the same things. They're not at war with each other. Did I, did I beat that horse sufficiently dead for you already? They, they say the same things. Jesus, you know, with his parables, he just says it with more panache than Paul. He, he explains it in parable form. God's kindness should lead us to repentance. The tax collector in Jesus' story got that. The Pharisee didn't. Paul says in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're like the Pharisee. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's referring there in verse 5 to the climactic eschatological day of the Lord where God's wrath will be poured out on sinners. Paul talks about a wrath, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 18, a wrath that is present, that's, that's already here. There's a present tense verb, so the wrath of God is here. But, I mean, that's just a foretaste of the day of wrath, of the day of the Lord that will come when God will ultimately and finally punish all sinners. There will be a day, the day of the Lord, the day of the wrath, when God's righteous judgment will revealed, be revealed, and nobody will escape it. No one will elude it. No one will be able to protect themselves or defend themselves against that wrath. Not without Jesus. Tommy Nelson, he tells a story about this friend of his that works in the Dallas area for the health department. And this, this health department worker has the, the unenviable task of going to restaurants and determining if what they're doing in the restaurant is, is you know, allowable for human consumption. Can I put it that way? And sometimes the restaurants are so bad, they can't just get a demerit or get a little punishment, you you actually have to close the restaurant down. We know a thing or two about that in Decatur, right? I mean, (laughs) and they, and it's more than just that. I mean, they, restaurant owners object to this, you know, they don't want their restaurant closed down, but what they really object to is that this health department worker, he's got to, he's got to put a sign at eye level over the restaurant that says condemned by order of the city health department. And that's what the restaurant owners really don't like. You know, okay, yeah, we're closed for a little while. We'll get it fixed and we can reopen. But when you have that eye level sign that says condemned by the health department, that wrecks your reputation, doesn't it? I mean, that humbles you. And what Paul is saying here for all of us is that 
metaphorically speaking, in our restaurants, there is a sign that says, unclean, condemned as a sinner before God. And it doesn't help to say, well, you know, metaphorically speaking, my restaurant's cleaner than some other guy's restaurant. It doesn't work that way. We are all, we are held to this objective standard of righteousness. Jesus Christ, and we all fall short. We all fall short. We are all sinners condemned by God. What are we going to do about that? That's our situation right now. We're, we're condemned in our own works before a righteous God. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to solve that problem? How are we going to fix that? How are we going to get that condemned sign taken off of ourselves? I'll answer that in a second, but first write this down as number four. Also, you need to understand that God's judgment is impartial. God's judgment is inescapable and God's judgment is impartial. Paul says in verse six, he, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, here's, here's what Paul does in these verses. He creates a dichotomy, okay? He creates two categories, and there's not a third category. He's not talking about a spectrum. He's not talking about a continuum. He's like, there's this, and then there's this, and those are the only options, a, they're seeking for glory and honor and humility and well-doing and the recipient of eternal life. And then there's B, they're self-seeking, disobedience to the truth, obedience to unrighteousness, and a recipient of the eternal wrath and fury of God. So what's it going to be, folks? Look at verse 9. Here's the, the dichotomy continues here. Paul says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So let's just work this out with a table. I made a little handy-dandy table here for you. You can see this on the screen. There's column one and then there's column two. And there's no column three, all right? These are your options. There's those who do evil. There's self-seeking. There's disobedience to the truth. There's obedience to unrighteousness. There's wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. And Paul says Jew and Gentile both can be in column one. And then there's column two. Patience and well-doing, glory, honor, immortality. That sounds good, Pastor Tony. Peace, eternal life. Yes, yes, yes. And Paul says Jews and Gentiles both. We'll have access to this. We'll be a part of this. The question is, which side of the table do you want to be on? Which side of the ledger are you on? The better question is, whose side of the ledger are you on this morning? Now, here's where the passage gets really interesting, because this is where we might expect in verse 11 for Paul to, you know, say, you can't be good, you don't do good, don't even try. But instead, Paul closes off this, he lets this dichotomy just kind of linger with us. And then he says in verse 11, this is, this is the main point he's getting at. God shows no partiality. For God shows no partiality. This is Paul's way of saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. God doesn't grade on the curve. God shows no partiality. God is no respecter of persons. Do you remember 
Do you remember Peter when he went into the house of Cornelius? Acts chapter 10. And Peter, can I say it this way? Peter was shocked that this pagan Gentile got saved. And he was shocked. I mean, God revealed this to him ahead of time. Shocked. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. This guy, and it wasn't just a normal pagan Gentile. It was a centurion. And Peter's, God wants to save Gentiles too. God had to do that work in Peter's heart. You know, yeah, he wants to save Gentiles too. And Peter says this. What did, what did Peter say? Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And I love, can I quote the King James for you? I don't always like the King James translation, but it just sounds more majestic here. And here's what it says. Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth I perceived that God is no respecter of persons. I love that so much I entitled this message. God is no respecter of persons. Peter opened his mouth. He said, God is no respecter of persons. Let me say to you this morning, as your pastor, can I use some King James language with, for you this morning? I love harvest decatur. It doesn't matter if you're an American. It doesn't matter if you're an African. It doesn't matter if you're red and yellow, black and white. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're male. It doesn't matter if you're female. It doesn't matter if your parents are Christians or if your parents are the worst heathens ever known to man. All of us fall short of the glory of God, and God has no partiality towards us. Do y'all know who Vince Lombardi is? How many of y'all know who that is? I know this is Decatur, the home of the Chicago Bears, but you should know who Vince Lombardi is. He coached the Green Bay Packers in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, and the Super Bowl trophies named after him. And Henry Jordan said about Vince Lombardi, he said, he treated us all the same, like dogs. <laughs> and I think he meant that as a compliment to Vince Lombardi. Vince had no partiality. He treated us all the same. That's Romans 2 right here. That's what Paul's getting at. God's going to treat us all the same. He's going to give us what we deserve. Now, here's the rub. Here's, here's where we have to do some hard thinking with these verses. We see in verses 7 and 10, can we put those columns up there again? Column 2, here's those who do good. And I know some of y'all are thinking right now, okay, those who do good, how do we do good? These are the ones who do good who receive eternal life. These are the ones that escape judgment and evade God's wrath. How, how did you do good to do that? That's not possible. We're, we don't believe in works-based salvation. Well, here's what I think, hypothetically, Paul is talking about. You've got to do good, perfectly good, all on your own. You can't ever sin. You can't ever make a mistake. You've got to be 100% righteous, 100% holy. Never, ever have a bad thought, a bad action, a bad deed towards another person. If you can do that, if you can manufacture that, you can be saved. Anybody want to try that? Anybody want to try that? Till the end of the day, can we do that? I don't think you can. I don't think Paul thinks that you can. You can't move from column one to column two on your own. You can't. You know, when I was little, me and my brother, we used, we used to play this Nintendo game called Contra. And we played that 
stupid game for hours and hours and hours. And we would put in this cheat code on Contra. This is like Nintendo 8-bit, I think, so forgive me for this. And, and we would do this cheat code. It was up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, B, A, start. <laughs> Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're either too young, too old, are too intelligent to play video games. <laughs> well, me and my brother, we weren't that intelligent as kids. We loved this game, and we played this game Contra, and we, would, we, we had this goal to try to make it through the entire game without dying once. And so we would try again and again and again, and it was, it was an exercise in futility. And as soon as we would die, we would reset our Nintendo and, you know, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, left, left, left. do it again, do it again, do it again. And, and we, we, we played that stupid game for hours trying to be perfect. And then my mom would come in the room and she'd, she'd say, I'm going to lose it with you guys. Get out of the house. Go do something else. Now, why do I say that? You try to be righteous on your own. You try to do good, try to put away sin on your own, try not to sin till the end of the day. That is an exercise in futility. If you're, if you're trying to do that in order to be saved. And, and even if you had a do-over, even if you could start over right now, which you can't, even if you could, you, you couldn't make it. You couldn't move from column one to column two on your own. Paul knows that. Paul knows that. So how do we, you're like, man, this is the most depressing message you've ever given, Pastor Tony. What are we going to do? How are we going to get from column one to column two? We can't, we can't do it on our own. How do we do that? You guys know how we do that. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone. Right? Right? That's how we do that. The story is told about General Sam Houston, first president of the Republic of Texas. I had to use a Texas illustration this morning because my parents are visiting from Texas. <laughs> Sam Houston, he got baptized later in life in the freezing waters of a creek outside of Independence, Texas. And, I mean, this is an older man. He was a general at this point. And when he came up out of the water, his friend said, Well, General, all your sins have been washed away. And Sam Houston said, God help the fish downstream. <laughs> what happened to Sam Houston? He moved from column one to column two. And here's what's amazing about that story. I mean, if you know anything about Sam Houston, he's, I mean, he's a brilliant guy. He was supposed to be the president of the United States, but he had so many vices, he just couldn't advance. And I mean, he was, if anybody deserved to go to hell, it was Sam Houston. But, but as a sinful man, he was saved. And even in doing that, I want y'all to get this too. Even in Sam Houston's salvation, even in your salvation, you might say, Sam Houston's got nothing on me, Pastor Tony. Should have seen me before I got saved. Even in that, God still doesn't show partiality. 
He doesn't. He doesn't show partiality to you because you're, you're so much more clever than your idiot brother-in-law who can't figure this out. You are not righteous before God because God is partial to you. You are righteous before God because Jesus paid for your sins. You are justified by faith. That's different than partiality. God is partial, if, if you want to say it that way, to you because Christ, Christ is in you. His righteousness is in you. You who are holy, unholy before a holy God have been made holy, holy before a holy God. You have been justified. You have been reckoned holy. We who are holy, unrighteous are declared holy, righteous, holy, unrighteous, or holy, Righteous before a righteous God through our faith in Christ. Do you get it? Do you get it? God is no respecter of persons, Harvest Decatur. God is not going to spare you from judgment just because you're better than some other sinner out there. God doesn't hold us to a subjective standard of righteousness. He holds us to an objective standard. And that standard is Christ. And we all fall short of that. And we all deserve judgment because of that. But, and I, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'm going to quote Romans 5.8, even though we're still in Romans 2, but this is just so good. I'm going to get, give you a little taste of it before we get to Romans 5. We are all sinners condemned before a righteous God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 